Hear that? Believe it or not, summer is just around the corner. Luckily, Armorall, America's most trusted auto appearance brand, has what your car needs to get that perfect summer shine. Plus, now through May 31st, we'll give you $5 for every $20 you spend on Armorall products. That means car wash pods, protectant, tire shine, you name it. Find out how to get your $5 rebate at Armorall.com. Armorall, less work, more clean. Terms apply. Allstate wants to remind fans that mayhem is everywhere. Like when your fantasy league meets up at your house. Everything's great until the hot plate gets too hot for the tablecloth. Now your kitchen's up in smoke. And if you don't have the right home insurance coverage, the cost to fix this is anything but a fantasy. So switch to Allstate, save money, and get protected from mayhem like this. Not available in every state. Based on coverage selected, subject to terms, conditions, and availability. Savings vary. When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. Welcome to the Bike Radar Podcast, brought to you by the team behind BikeRadar.com, Cycling Plus, and MBUK magazines. If you enjoy this episode, please subscribe. And if you can do so, leave us a rating on your podcast provider of choice. It really helps us reach other cyclists like you. Welcome to the Bike Radar Podcast. My name is George Scott, Editor-in-Chief of Bike Radar, and today I am joined by Simon von Bromley, Senior Technical Writer on Bike Radar, to talk about the Tour de France. Simon, how are you doing? Yeah, really good. Thanks, George. I can't believe uh, another Tour de France has come to an end. It, it, it's almost like having a birthday. You can't believe they, they come and go so quickly, and then you're a year older and, you know, maybe a little bit wiser, but <laughs> certainly feel old. We've got a whole year to wait until next year's tour because we're recording this on the afternoon of Monday the 25th of July the Tour de France wrapped up yesterday uh, I think it's been a pretty good to put it mildly three weeks Simon but you know let's uh, let's start with your thoughts on this year's Tour de France yeah it has I, I agree I think it has been a really good tour um, especially the kind of opening opening couple of weeks I thought were electric you know the the racing just kind of never died down. And I think we saw that reflected in the kind of uh, rider comments that, you know, it, it, it was one of those ones where it was worth watching the stages from start to finish, which is kind of rare because often, you know, you might see 20 minutes of action at the start of a stage and then settle onto the couch for a nap and a, and a you know, a cold drink and some crisps for, for four hours before maybe coming out, waking up to tune into the finish. But, but these kind of every, every single day, there was a, just a massive fight to get in the breakaway. GC contenders were, you know, attacking at random spots and, yeah, I, I think it kind of tailed off a little bit when it became clear that the yellow jersey was just head and shoulders above everyone else and, and wasn't going to falter. But um, but it's easy to kind of say that with hindsight, I guess. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, you've, you've, you've summed it up, but a fantastic tour for the amount of attacking, the explosive performances, the fact that, you know, as you say, up until the last couple of stages, really, it felt like even though... Fingergaard had a, a solid lead that it could change at any particular point in in time. Um, 
And so, you know, I think this is a good opportunity for us to you know, reflect on the Tour de France. It has been a great addition, but also in customary bike radar fashion, as we did last year, to dish out some of our end of tour awards. And we've got six to run through. We've got three focusing on racing and, and three on the tech, which is obviously where we normally specialize. But we are also fans of pro cycling and of the Tour de France in particular. So we are also going to talk through some of our rider highlights and some of the performances that have stood out for this year. So I think let's get stuck straight into it, Simon. Who was your rider of the tour? Well, I think if uh, if I had written the notes rather than you had written the notes for this podcast, I think <laughs> I think I'd have been saying someone different. Uh, but um, for me, I'm gonna I'm gonna go with uh, Garrett Thomas, and perhaps you know this is a bit parochial because <laughs> he's British, and uh, this is maybe a bit sad. But I thought it wasn't a, a flashy performance, but perhaps you know way beyond what anyone expected of him uh, leading up to the tour. And the fact that on most days he was the only person who could stick with Pogacar and Vingegaard was pretty incredible for someone who I think a lot of people had kind of written off as a bit past his best. So, you know, obviously he had the, uh, (laughs) the opening incident with the gilet and, you know, and and that was a bit unspectacular, but I don't think in you know in the kind of in in the long the long run it made a big difference. And uh, actually, for for those who weren't aware, for, what I'm talking about is um in in the opening stage time trial, Garrett Thomas forgot to remove his gilet and uh, <laughs> rode it with his kind of wet weather gilet still on, you know, kind of ruining all of the uh, hundreds of hours of research and development that presumably went into his very very nice skin suit. So. Um, that was a, a little bit funny, but you know, he, yeah, he, he stuck doggedly to the back wheel of, of the leading two and, uh, you know, gave it his absolute, uh, best to, to kind of get the best result rode very consistently day in, day out, didn't make any mistakes, didn't do anything silly. And, uh, you know, he's got a full suite of Tour de France podium places on his Palmares now, including, you know, obviously a win in 2018, second place in 2019, and now a third place in the 2022 edition. And I think just goes to show kind of what a classy bike rider he is. And, you know, obviously has been throughout his entire career. Yeah, I couldn't agree more. I think it, you know, it was a really mature performance in the sense that didn't get flustered by what was happening ahead of him, perhaps realized quite early on that wasn't going to match Vingegaard and Pogacar. Um, but yeah, another performance, another brilliant performance at the Tour from Geraint Thomas. Uh, as you say, on the podium, once again, uh, you know, he's now proven twice that whilst he hasn't necessarily followed up with another Tour de France win, the Tour win he did get in 2018 was by no means a fluke. Uh, brilliant rider, brilliant stage racer. Um, so not much more we can say about Geraint Thomas, a big chapeau to him. But my uh, my rider of the Tour is... I was going to say the obvious pick in a sense that, uh, but maybe it isn't. You know, Vingegaard won the tour, so perhaps he's the obvious pick. But I think for a lot of people, it would be Wout van Aert, and he is just a, a ridiculous rider. Three stage wins, four second place finishes, finishes, marauding attacks from the break, solo attacks in the mountains and and up the road on on the flat stuff as well, and also the perfect domestique. It was by no means just a, a kind of singular performance um from Wout van Aert uh, for his own gain he goes beyond super domestique he's a super super domestique or maybe we need to come up for it with a new phrase for <laughs> Wout van Aert but uber domestique uber domestique maybe but you know what what more can you say um 
yeah, a new a new record in the points classification to beat Peter Sagan's modern day record to win the green jersey. Almost won the King of the Mountain classification along the way. Um, and yeah, I think we we as journalists and as also the watching public can sometimes get drawn into kind of unnecessary comparisons. And I think a comparison between Sagan and Van Aert is unfair, um, but inevitable perhaps considering they, they're both dominant in the points classification. But it's Van Aert's versatility that really shines through for me. Yeah, totally. I, I, I think he was just so impressive on every stage he was he was involved in the action as you say whether that was attacking to kind of you know hoover up uh points classification points or to help Jumbo Visma as a, as a domestique or you know kind of bringing Vingegaard back to the front group on on the kind of cobble stage on say stage five and then you know coming out of the break on uh in the Pyrenees to help Vingegaard drop Pogacar on Hortecam and then, you know, finishing third um, in front of Geraint Thomas on that stage. Like he was just extraordinary. And, and, I, and I think, you know, I think the Sagan comparison is, is apt, uh, in more than apt, actually. You know, we, I'm sure you know, any kind of longtime cycling fans will remember uh, Sagan in, in his pomp being, as you say, kind of marauding, you know, almost kind of swashbuckling in style. And, um, yeah, Van Aert absolutely had that in, that attack and stage win in the in the yellow jersey early on in the tour was just extraordinary. You know, it's easy to forget. Um, you know, he kind of he, he made the kind of the, literally the best riders in the world look like juniors as he just rode away from them and uh, did it. You know, a la pedale as they say in in France. It, he was just absolutely extraordinary. Um, but yeah, no, no, obvious, no kind of no mention of uh, of Jonas Vingegaard, which may be a bit uncharitable. Yeah, absolutely, and and yeah, clearly, hats off to him. He was a brilliant winner, a worthy winner. Um, I think everyone was back in Pagacha coming into this tour to to get a, a hat trick of wins on on the bounce. But you know, after the the Galibier stage. Vingegaard just didn't look flustered. He he matched Pogacar in every sense, and and of course dropped him again by the time that the Pyrenees came. So, yeah, you know, he he clearly is the best rider in the tour. But I think Wout van Aert just for that versatility, that consistency, the panache, uh, and also a very Sagan-like celebration when he won in the yellow jersey as well. And great great to see a bit of that character. So, yeah, Wout van Aert for me. But I have got a couple of uh, honourable mentions as well, actually, and one of those is Tadej Pogacar because. You know, we've spoken about the, you know, the the amount of attacking and the the fun almost that kind of ran through this year's tour, and a lot of that came from Tadej Pogacar. Even when he knew that it was over, he was attacking again and again, all the way down to the Champs Elysees. So, you know, I think a rider that just loves bike racing and also kind of understands, I suppose, what it is to be a fan of bike racing and to watch and to put on a show. So, a big, uh, yeah, a big pat on the back from me to to Tadej Pogacar. Yeah, absolutely. And I think there'll be a kind of lot of, um, you know, post-fact analysis that his attacks, you know, obviously didn't have the desired effect and were therefore mistakes. But I think it's really easy to kind of say that in hindsight. But of course, you know, like uh, Jumbo Visma found out, you know, you only really needed one or two big attacks to kind of pay off and for your rival to have one big crack for a huge gap to to open up. And so... Yeah. 
you know, I, I, I've had kind of conversations with friends of mine about, you know, I think, and, you know, Pogacar himself said that, you, you know, he, he'd talked to rivals about, you know, letting someone like Thomas or David Godou go up the road, but I, I just don't think those riders were capable of doing it. Um, you know, Vingegaard was was too strong and, and Jumbo Visma as a team were, were too strong as well. So, you know, they kind of had a stranglehold on the, on the race that, that meant, they just they you know both Pogacar and Vingegaard just rode everyone off their wheel you know on, on every kind of mountain stage so there wasn't anyone else to attack and uh, Pogacar had you know few cards to play tactically and, and and I don't think we can fault him for the manner that in which he rode you know we didn't know at the time that Roglic was you know uh, feeling so injured that he was going to pull out of the the tour the next day, so it's easy to sort of say, "Oh, he should have just ignored Roglic and um, you know focused solely on Jonas Vingegaard." But of course, you know Roglic is a former Grand Tour winner, has finished on the podium of, of the Tour de France. He's uh, you know he's not a rival <laughs> you can just ignore. So yeah, a spe- another special ride, and I think it really kind of puts a shine on on this yellow jersey as well because we we haven't mentioned. Jonas Vingegaard and and I think it's unfortunate that riding for the yellow jersey is often a, a kind of exercise in being a bit boring you know you don't take risks you kind of you know you just once you're in the yellow jersey you just follow because you don't have to attack um but having to uh you know having firstly to to beat someone like Tadej Pogacar who you know is a superlative talent um but also respond to all of those attacks and you know do so in such an unflustered manner it just just kind of shows how good a rider both of them are absolutely yeah and i, I think as well with with Pogaccio, i think firstly attacking runs runs through his blood but also he he knew that he didn't necessarily have the the firepower within the team to match jumbo visma and just go toe to toe toe to toe in a, a kind of um a team a team drag race so uh you know had to go out all guns blazing and, and i think you know it's been very magnanimous in in defeat as well they're clearly good friends there's clearly a lot of uh, sportsmanship and, and kind of good faith between the two of them so you know he he seemed very happy with his uh, young rider classification win and free stage wins as anyone should be um, and just briefly before we moved on I think Fred Wright for me uh, you know partly as a Brit but I think um, fans of the sport worldwide will pick him out as a highlight from this year's tour from a Bahrain victorious team that was very disappointing across the board his attacking performances um, you know, he was a rider that, that really came of age in this year's tour. And clearly, I say clearly, but from watching him in interviews and having interviewed him myself a couple of years ago, doesn't perhaps grasp the the size of the talent at his disposal. And I'm really looking forward to seeing what comes of him because you know he can he can climb, he's tactically sound, he's a brilliant time trial, uh time trialist, I think finished in the top ten of two Tour de France time trials now at the end of a three week stage race. Um and so didn't quite get the, the win he was expecting or wanted this year, but it's only a matter of time, surely. Yeah, absolutely. Um, I, I think he, he was kind of, you know, he ended, the Tour de France, the standard is so high. And often, you know, he, he when he was beaten, it was only by riders of the calibre of, you know, former world champion Mads Pedersen, for example. Um, so clearly to be able to to put in rides like that you know day after day and in a free week in a free week uh, race was incredibly impressive for such a young rider and uh 
yeah, absolutely. A really ob- obvious talent and a really promising breakaway specialist and one we'll be keeping a close eye on. Absolutely. Uh, speaking of Fred Roy, actually, I spoke to Matt Bramayer, uh, who at the time was running the GB Under 23 Academy, may still be running it or certainly involved in British cycling in some capacity. But at the time, and this was at the start of 2019, so before Fred Wright had uh, graduated to the World Tour, he made a comparison between Wright and Geraint Thomas in their, um, their the size of their engine, also their personality. They're, you know, they're, they're quite unassuming guys. So, um, you know, if, if, if Fred Wright can match the career of Geraint Thomas, then clearly we're on to another good thing. So let's move on to uh, our performance of the tour now. Um, and I know Fred Wright was someone that you wanted to speak about here, Simon, but he uh, didn't necessarily put in your stand-up performance of the tour. So uh, who's your winner here? Um, I think we're going to say the same thing here because this was a kind of Tour de France uh, defining day and it was the uh, the team performance by Jumbo Visma on stage 11. Um, they absolutely tore up the race that day, uh, obviously putting uh, Roglic, uh, Vingegaard, Pogacar and Geraint Thomas into a you know, a four-man breakaway, which obviously included <laughs> the yellow jersey, uh, going over the Col de Glibier and then onto the Col de Granon. And they played Pogacar, uh, Vingegaard and Roglic did, they played Pogacar absolutely perfectly. Uh, they left him isolated without help and um, played to their strengths absolutely fantastically. And Obviously, the, defending the lead from from that point on was very difficult, you know. Clearly, but that was the the race winning move for me, and it was a kind of, you know, to use the football analogy, it was a it was a set piece move, and they executed it absolutely perfectly. They did, yeah. And, and going back to something that we mentioned earlier, perhaps exposed or you know, whether it's intentional or not, exposed Pogacar's desire to to match attacks and to, to to ride full throttle the whole time and and ultimately that did leave him exposed on on the final climb and you, you mentioned this earlier as well it's it's very rare now that we see big time gaps between the gc riders on uh on the on the final climb of a tour de, the final climb of a tour de france mountain stage but that you know that's what we saw two minutes plus if not more um between vingegaard and, and pagacha and yeah clearly there was a lot of the race to come from then another 10 stages but it, it, it did define the race it did put Vingegaard into the yellow jersey and you know Pogaccia was um playing catch up from there and ultimately didn't have anything to match it so same for me brilliant performance one of the best team performances we've seen on a single day at the Tour de France for for some time so um fully agree with you on that one obviously a uh, special mention to Tom Pickock for his outdoors win the next day and his uh, incredible descent off the the Galibier. Um, that was a, a bit of a coming of age for a rider who, you know, we already knew was was special, but um, to win to win on outdoors and to do it in that fashion was. Uh, you know was was incredible and and the speed and the kind of skill with which he descended off the Glivier passing you know numerous seasoned professionals you know even a kind of rider of the caliber of of you know Chris Froome who you know we know from the 2018 Giro d'Italia can descend like a rocket he, he even even he was was struggling to hold Pickock's wheel and um obviously to then you know go 
toe to toe with Froome and Louis Mankey's up uh, outdoors and through through the crowds to to kind of win on that you know, I- iconic mountain was uh, something pretty, pretty amazing. Yeah, absolutely. And, and as you say, you know, we we have known for some time that Tom Pickock is a remarkable talent, not just on, on the road, but in cyclocross and mountain biking as well. And he still continues to amaze us with performance after performance across all three of those disciplines. So another one who, you know, we, we don't know where the limit is for Tom Pickock, but on his Tour de France debut is one perhaps on the biggest stage of all so yeah big uh another big chapeau to to our man tom um so let's let's quickly move on to our next award which is our final kind of race focus or racing focused award and it's the team of the tour and i think we can probably do this one quite quickly simon because we're going to be talking about jumbo visma the overall win the king of the mountains jersey the green jersey six stage wins is there anything more to add yeah, it's, it's it's so hard to look past uh, Jumbo Visma for this one. As you say, I, it, no no one else uh, <laughs> no one else compares. It's really it's really really difficult because I think Jumbo Visma pr- performed uh, you know ac- across the board with obviously you know taking the yellow jersey, the the King of the Mountains jersey, the the green jersey, and and then you know riders like Laporte also got a stage win on top of. You know, the five that they got from Wout van Aert and Jonas Vingegaard. So, yeah, just a kind of absolutely consummate performance. I, I don't think, you know, we haven't seen a a tour performance this dominant from a team since the kind of Team Sky era, really. Um, and, yeah, just, yeah, just amazing. I, I, the, no, I no one else comes close, really, which is which is saying something. Yeah, and the you know the team the team Sky comparison is is definitely a fair one, but I think where Jumbo Visma really impressed was the fact that they had Wout Van Aert. And, yeah, um, you know clearly there there was the the Sky years with Mark Cavendish in the team, but that that was a, a a balance that Sky were very reluctant to strike in terms of you know fighting on two fronts, uh, and ultimately I think you know probably led to Cavendish Cavendish's departure from that team so yeah not just the the kind of the way they conducted themselves in in the GC but also the license that Van Aert was given to attack that green jersey and ultimately that was often in in the um or to the benefit of uh Vingegaard as well because he went up the road and was in there as a a rider for Jonas Vingegaard to use when the break ultimately failed so yeah Jumbo Visma for me And, and just as an aside I saw that the Tour de France prize money um, kind of list or kind of uh, the, the final tally for each team came out this morning and unsurprisingly Jumbo Visma are on top of that by some margin more than double the prize pot of any other team with 779,750 euros with UAE Team Emirates of course the team of Teddy Bogaccia in second with 322,960 but what was really interesting on the uh, the Twitter post from uh, the Inner Ring uh, an excellent cycling website if you are into your pro cycle and I recommend you check it out. But someone asked, uh, you know, where would Wout van Aert place if he was a single team? <laughs> and the answer with a bit of a kind of quick back of the envelope <clears throat> maths was somewhere between Bora and Alpecin. So that would place Van Aert first, second, third, fourth, fifth, sixth in the team standings <laughs> for, pri- for prize money. So, um, yeah, Wout van Aert is a team in himself. Yeah. And, and I, you know, I, 
that that's a good post that I saw on Twitter this morning as well, actually. And and I think you know what the kind of inner ring kind of deftly points out is is the kind of the tour prize money list is less of a, a case. It's quite a good indication for how active uh, and how well teams performed during during a race. As obviously you know, you, you win prize money for winning stages, placing in stages, and and doing all of that, and you know getting bonus points, winning classifications, and. Um, yeah, there were a few teams at the bottom of that list who uh, aren't going home with with much to to kind of talk about, and that is reflected. You know, Astana, I think, were at the bottom of the list, and you know, I can't remember a single thing that that team did throughout the race. So, yeah, a very interesting list. Yeah, and a disappointing tour for Astana and, and Lotus Sudal also. At the bottom of that list, both on about fifteen thousand euros each. So, yeah, unfortunately, not everyone can be a Jumbo Visma, but it was, you know, it was a particularly disappointing uh, tour for those two World Tour teams. Uh, okay, so that's our our racing awards wrapped up. Let's move on to a few of our techie awards. We've got three to run through here as well. So it's a little bit tenuous in that bikes are inanimate objects. But Simon, what was your <laughs> bike of the tour? I think uh, my bike of the tour is a kind of this is a hipster's choice, but um, <laughs> <laughs> I'm, I'm going to go for uh, Taco Vanderhorn's Cube Lightning C68X SL or T. Actually, it's a team edition version. Now, uh, Taco came very, very close to winning stage five. He just pipped on the line by Simon Clark of uh, Israel Premier Tech, and well done him. But that was really annoying for us because I had a gallery of pictures of, <laughs> of Taco's bike waiting to go. All and, that work. <laughs> yeah, exactly. And I, and I had, uh, we, I'd sort of picked him out as a, as an interesting, as a, as an interesting tech story. And it was still an interesting tech story, but I, th- I think, you know, for anyone who knows uh, Taco Vanderhorn, he rides, he, he rides in an incredibly uh, aggressive position with a very kind of personally optimized aerodynamic setup so he rides a, a sort of a slightly smaller frame with a load of saddle to handlebar drop really really narrow bars with the kind of shifter hoods turned in um a very long stem you know deep section wheels with with tubeless ready tires on an aero frame with a ceramic speed oversized aero pulley wheel and and you know all of all of these sorts of things but it it was it, it was a kind of uh, quite a workman a workhorse like bike it wasn't uh you know when we visited Ineos you know we saw Garrett Thomas's uh Pinarello Dogma F and it was pristine uh, you know apart from the kind of wear on the chain rings but um Taco's bike had the kind of scars of battle still in place and it was yeah just just very cool it, it's kind of rarer these days to see riders going for kind of highly unusual uh setups just because you know, more riders are kind of constrained by the you know, sponsorship arrangements and things like that on, on the road. Um, but yeah, a, a, a real highlight. And, and obviously as a kind of tech nerd, very cool to see a bike that I've, you know, looked up on Getty <laughs> numerous times in the flesh. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah, that's definitely a good one to pick out. I think particularly as there is most pro bikes, most Tour de France bikes these days are, are fairly homogenous in kind of spec choices and and just just how they look drop seat stays aero tube profiles so it does take uh, a bike like taco vanderhorns to really stand out with just how aggressive and how unique his setup is i think also as, as a as an aside as well we just don't really see the unique 
kind of one-off paint jobs that we used to see at the tour. Yeah, of course, you get green bikes for the green jersey winner, and yellow bikes for the yellow jersey winner, uh, and polka dots and so on. But you know, you don't have the Vincenzo Nibali kind of uh, shark designs of the, the 2014 era. We used to see a lot more one-off paint jobs for the likes of well, for, for team leaders as a whole, but particularly those rides on the big teams, Nibali, Cavendish, and so on. Just don't see that uh, anymore. Um, partly down to possibly the the extra weight that those paint jobs can add, or maybe just the uh, desire of teams and sponsors to have a uniform look across the board. Um, so yeah, not not there weren't too many bikes that really stood out, but Vanderhorns was one um, that did when we were in Copenhagen. Um, my uh, bike of the tour is is less kind of an in- individual rider's bike, but just a new model that we saw at the Grand Depart and actually enjoyed success at the tour with two stage wins or powered to two stage wins. And that was the new Giant Propel. Um, you know, this is partly because it's a bike that we don't really know anything about at the moment. Um, there were quite a few new bikes that were released ahead of the tour. This is one that hasn't yet been released. We ha- we don't have any word from from Giant at the moment. So quite looking forward to seeing what the official line is on this. But, you know, we do know at this stage from uh, seeing it and uh touching it and photographing it at the tour is that it does appear to be a a lightweight version of the previous propel it has gone on a, a bit of a diet slim down tube so we imagine that giant will say it's as aerodynamic or perhaps even more so than the previous version but um you know we we're, we're fans generally of the giant tcr that's a, a great handling all-rounder and if the new propel can take some of that uh, some of those good manners and kind of um, usability of the the TCR and put it in an aero package that's also competitive on the scales, then uh, I look forward to hearing more about that one. Excellent. Well, let's move on to our penultimate award, and that is our individual tech highlight of the tour. So we've spoken about bikes. What was your tech highlight, Simon, aside from bikes? I think this is a um, a kind of slightly neb- nebulous one, uh, and 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 I suppose you know it can't all be attributed to the the tech necessarily, as there are obviously lots of other reasons for it. But this, as far as I'm aware, this is this this Tour de France set the record for the fastest ever Tour de France, uh, and it averaged, I think, you know, over 42 kilometers per hour. Which, when you consider that two weeks of the race took place in you know <laughs> the first week in the Alps and the second week in the Pyrenees is pretty extraordinary and it had a flat opening week where they were sitting on an average speed of I think well over 45 kilometers an hour uh, and I think you know beyond the kind of the racing style where the riders have talked about the fact that there was just endless attacks and ev- ev- everyone was kind of on it every single day I, I think the peloton is to a T now so much uh, better optimized both from a kind of you know bike tech standpoint but also from a kind of physiological standpoint and we've we've spoken about this many times in previous podcasts but the kind of democratization of power meters and aero equipment and, and you know speed suits as in, or skin suits for road stages aero wheels you know all the teams are looking at data for for tires rolling resistance and you know drivetrain efficiency and, and every little detail that you know marginal gains are no longer the preserve of the kind of top teams with the big budgets and and actually everyone you know in order to just simply stay competitive is having to to do these things and and i think yeah that is kind of reflected in in the kind of you know it wasn't unusual to see the bunch kind of pinging along at 70 kilometers an hour on the flat and and you know there's no way you do that on kind of raw grunt alone because 
you know the kind of power required to do that in a you know in, on a non-aero bike without aero equipment in a non-aero riding position would just be you know, practically impossible so i think it just just kind of goes to show that behind the scenes everyone has been working incredibly hard and, and i imagine you know wind tunnel testing used to be the preserve of you know just time trial specialists but I, 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 without a doubt, imagine that there are most teams are now wind tunnel testing or certainly track testing their kind of road bike positions and their road bike equipment because the speeds that were attained, you know, day in day out on this year's Tour de France were just extraordinary. Yeah, I think that's a that's a great answer. I think you know, it's it's there's not necessarily a specific highlight there. It's just the fact that Tour Tech and Pro Tech is is so good these days, and also it's taken so seriously. I think you know most. Well, all teams and, and most riders and particularly a lot of the uh, kind of uh, the current crop of new riders understand the impact and the importance of uh, having a kind of perfectly dialed setup and if they don't then their, their teams will certainly express that to them I think there were a few kind of emerging trends that we spoke about in a previous podcast that were interesting at this year's tour uh, tubeless tires continue to take over or certainly become or in the majority uh if not completely dominant be interesting to see how that develops over the next couple of years i think it was also interesting again this is a topic that you've written about simon that there were very few changes on uh bikes for the paris-roubaix stages i think only a couple of teams swapped bikes uh, most most riders were on their regular aero or semi-aero bikes um so, I mean, this isn't necessarily a tech highlight because from our point of view, it makes Paris-Roubaix tech a lot less interesting or, or boring. In fact, I think that was the word you used. But, <laughs> yeah. <laughs> uh, yeah, that's that's certainly a, a, a trend that we've seen both in Paris-Roubaix and uh, at the Tour. And, and there weren't as many cobbles and weren't as many five-star five sectors in this year's Roubaix stage as there is in uh, the regular Roubaix. So... Anyway, I've kind of uh, I've diverted there. My tech highlight for the tour, perhaps not the most interesting one. I'll hand this award to you, Simon. But I think just the return of the aero bike. Um, over the last few years, we've seen a lot of focus on the the kind of the semi aero all rounders, the likes of the Pinarello Dogma, Specialized, killing off the Venge in favour of the Tarmac SL7 and the the AFOS for um, not for for racing, but for the lightweight option on the consumer market. So. Yeah, really interesting to see a bit more focus on aero bikes this year and actually tallies into what you were saying about uh, the, the focus on aerodynamics and this being the fastest tour ever. So uh, there's the new Cervelo uh, S5, um, the new Trek Madone, the new Giant Propel uh, and the new Scott Foyle. Um, I mean, just briefly on the S5, Simon, because this podcast, we're recording it on Monday, but by the time it goes out on Tuesday, the S5 will be released. The embargo will have lifted. And I know you've been... Uh, writing about that bike writing the news story got a couple of rides on it so is there anything you can share of our listeners who will be picking up this podcast after the launch yeah i think you know if if you know the current s5 then the new s5 will be very familiar to you it's a kind of uh, refinement of uh a, you know a kind of already very fast bike uh, you know it won't surprise you obviously Cervelo were one of the original aero bike manufacturers so the new s5 is an incredibly fast bike it, you know, I think your point about not many riders switching from their stock aero bikes to a kind of specialist you know, cobblestone bike was was spot on. And 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 Jumbo Visma certainly rode their S5s for that stage because the new model has tire clearance for up to 34 millimeter tires. You know, and we've we've talked about this in in other podcasts because of you know aero road bike trends. But you know, 34 millimeter tires used to be the preserve of gravel. 
uh, bikes, but now we're seeing it on on aero road bikes. So it, it, it's it's kind of one of those things that maybe it's you know you don't need 34 millimeters higher clearance for every single ride you're doing, but certainly around here in you know, South Bristol, the kind of roads are are naff, and and having you know. Uh, a bike that's kind of optimized around 28s or even 30 millimeter tires and is an aero bike for those kind of rolling terrain that for that rolling terrain that we have it it really does make perfect sense and and i've been out on a few bikes you know kind of recently which have come back to 25 mil tires and have felt noticeably you know kind of harsh and and bumpy on those roads and and then compared to the kind of modern generation of aero road bikes that do combine that kind of you know higher volume tire and don't really seem to give up anything in in kind of speed it, you know these these it does make them much more of a of an all-rounder bike you know in in other kind of new special uh Cervelo says they have simplified the front end which is nice because obviously <laughs> road bikes manufacturers love a complicated front end um it you know it still has that kind of internal cable routing headache that you're going to have with you know any kind of integrated setup but but they've reduced the kind of number of parts that you need uh to to kind of swap a stem or ch you know change the angle of your angle of your handlebar for example which is which is quite nice and um other than that it's it's mainly small changes that take advantage of the kind of latest updates to the UCI rule so just allowing for slightly deeper tubes you know more compensation triangles between say the seat tube and the, and the top tube just to kind of eke out a few watts of extra aerodynamic performance but i think beyond that in terms of the frame it it's it's kind of it's you know it's evolution not revolution but um yeah it certainly feels fast out on the road well when you are listening to this podcast you, you will be able to read simon's news story on the new Cervelo s5 so do go and check that out for all the details also clearly a bike that was ridden to to great effect by team jumbo visma at the tour in both um jonas Vingegaard and Wout van Aert, amongst others, were on the S5, particularly for the, the last stage and the flat stage into Paris. So, yeah, return of the Eurobike is a, a key theme for me. Um, but also just to pick up on what Simon said, that the versatility of today's Tour de France bikes, I think, is a, a real boon for everyone. Uh, and then finally, Simon, let's let's flip that on its head. Let's finish on a, <laughs> on a, on a sour note, a dour note. Tech fail of the Tour. Talk to me. I, th I think you know there's a really obvious one that you've written down which i think is 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 perfect but just just to not steal your thunder because it's it's such a good one i i'm gonna kind of go for for heavy bikes and and you know i don't i personally don't really uh care that much about bike weight as kind of anyone who's familiar with my writing will know but it is has been in in hard to ignore and, and that our audience for example has been i would say surprised by the kind of the weight of a complete Tour de France bike. And I think 10 years ago, everyone got used to, uh, as, as you said in, in previous podcasts and in previous features, uh, mechanics having to add ballast to to a Tour de France bike because so it was so easy to get a, you know, a lightweight round tubed rim brake Tour de France bike under uh, 6.8 kilos, even with pedals and a, you know, a kind of a computer head unit. But since then, you know, now everyone's riding a power meter, everyone's riding disc brakes, everyone's riding an aero bike, everyone's riding, you know, <laughs> well, not everyone's riding. I was going to say everyone's riding tubeless ready wheels, but that's not that's not quite true. Fifty percent of people are riding tubeless wheels and tubeless tires. And uh, and all of these things have added, you know, significant weight to bikes so much so that, you know, the majority of bikes that we weighed came in, you know, well over seven and a half kilos and and 
you know, are pushing eight, if not more. Um, now, you know, as I've already said, this was the, the fastest Tour de France ever, so it's clearly not um, holding riders back. But I think the kind of the reaction to, to this trend has been uh, visceral, almost, I would say. And, and, you know, we have spoken a lot about uh, aerodynamics versus low weight and, and aerodynamics will generally in most circumstances always trump, which is why, you know, we have aero bikes that, um, you know, on which riders aren't necessarily too concerned about, you know, hitting the weight limit or switching back to lightweight bikes. But, you know, the weight limit is there. There are some benefits to a lightweight bike. And so if over the next few weeks, few years, we can kind of see aerodynamic performance continue to improve and weights also to come down, then, you know, that's a, a double win, I suppose. Yeah, it would be interesting to see, uh, you know, where where the sport goes with this. You know, will brands keep pushing that weight down? It's kind of hard to see where, you know, if a, if a, you know, if a complete bike weighs seven 0.8 kilos it, now it's kind of hard to see where brands can chop a kilo off to get down to that 6.8 kilo figure without compromising on you know one safety <laughs> or two things like aerodynamics and and performance now it, it we, we we you know we, we have talked about this previously but it would be a, there would be an interesting dynamic in play if the uci decided to kind of lower the the weight limit to, to 5.8 kilos because you know would we then see the return of, of rim brakes which are you know even today even though there's no development around rim brakes really there are they are still lighter and now perhaps that won't happen you know purely because you know commercially maybe bike brands don't want to develop rim brake bikes because it's you know costly to have new molds and shimano isn't really supporting <laughs> rim brakes anymore and that you know that sort of thing but um but i think that would add an an interesting dynamic to to the sport because suddenly you know a two kilo or more difference would would have teams thinking about a decision to make yeah absolutely fully agree and that that is something that we talked about in our uh future uh tour de france tech podcast the future of tour de france tech i think it was called from a couple of episodes ago in this series so do check that out um, you know, we, we also talked through some of the other UCI rules that we would like to see ripped up and rewritten, uh, but perhaps without uh, much expectation that that will happen. I think just on on rim brakes, I think you know this tour again. I'm gonna you know, I'm gonna sound the death now for rim <laughs> brakes for the for the ump, umpteenth time. Uh, it's happened many times before, and I'm sure it will continue to happen. But you know, last year we we did see rim brakes at the Tour de France on road stages uh, with Tadej Pogacar notably moving from a disc brake bike onto a rim brake bike for the mountains. That didn't happen this year. It was disc brakes across the board for every rider, every team, every stage. So yeah, this was the year that rim brakes disappeared from the Tour de France, certainly in, as far as road stages are concerned. Time trials, there, there are certainly still a few time trial bikes uh, that are due an update and uh, you know when those updates come the Scott Plasma being one of them we fully expect those bikes to switch from rim brakes to to disc brakes but yeah there's a few outliers there but certainly in terms of rim brakes uh, on the road it's over as far as the tour is concerned. Yeah absolutely and and like you said there were a few um, rim brake time trial bikes still being ridden at the Tour de France but you know even there uh, in the time trial it was they were kind of dominated by riders on disc brake time trial bikes. So 
again, it's kind of one of those things where you know, we often hear that disc brakes are less aerodynamic than rim brakes, but you, you know, you, you're not always comparing apples to apples because removing the the need for a rim brake uh, opens up wheel design in in other areas. So, you know, you don't have to have the rim as a braking surface anymore. That means you can have a different shaped rim, blah blah blah. So it, it it's kind of too simplistic to say that that rim brakes are always more aerodynamic than than um than disc brakes and and yeah the obviously it didn't seem to be slowing any of the best riders down as they were all on uh disc brakes now you know, maybe the, the the order of the top 10 on every stage may have been the same had they all been on rim brakes but you know we, we saw a couple of uh <laughs> you know Jonas Vingergaard on the on the final stage almost crashed into a wall <laughs> and uh you know maybe his, maybe his disc brakes saved him so um yeah, maybe that's a bit of a stretch, but um, I I agree. It, the kind of we've heralded the death of the rim brake many times, but I think you know there can't be the coffin. Surely doesn't need too many nails in it anymore. No, no, I'm sure we'll 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 find a way to talk about it this time next year. <laughs> but um, my you know, rim, rim brakes aside, my uh, tech fail of the tour, and I think was the one that you were alluding to when you started this segment, was the the specialized TT5 time trial helmet and. I don't want to be too unfair and specialized here because I'm sure it is a very fast helmet. And again, in a previous podcast, when we looked at Tour de France trends, we talked about the emergence, not just with specialized, but also with uh, cask and uh, the, the team Ineos riders using cask helmets in the opening time trial, this trend towards big oversized helmets. Uh, you know, This one from specialized, which was launched ahead of the tour also effectively includes a, a kind of a, a balaclava within it which uh, according to Specialized improves aerodynamics. But you know, aside from any potential aero gain of, of which I'm sure the, the, the kind of the data can stack up, it just looks ridiculous. It's a really odd helmet. Uh, yeah, unfortunately for Specialized, it wasn't used by Eve Lampart on stage one when he won the time trial. I think that was definitely unfortunate from a marketing point of view. I'm sure they would have wanted the Tour de France stage winner to be in their new time trial helmet. So a little bit of a tech fail on that front. And I think also it was only used to, to uh, by a limited number of quick step alpha final riders on stage 20 and certainly no, or, or, or certainly less bore hands grower riders. So yeah, as I say, I'm sure it's a very fast helmet, but I think uh, it's not one that, uh, that I'm loving. <laughs> yeah. It's, it's hard to know what to make of this helmet. And, and I, I, I don't want to dismiss it out of hand without kind of knowing um, you know the data behind it and the kind of researchers that has, that has gone into it, and of, you know, of course, you know, we have the kind of classic example of the the Pock Tempor to to look at, where you know that helmet when it was uh, first released in 2012, and then the Garmin Slipstream, as they were at the time, now EF Education Easy Post, you know, their pro riders really didn't didn't want to wear it because it kind of looks ridiculous, but you know that that helmet has since had. A, a bit of a renaissance as you know people have found that in the right position and on the right rider it can be an extremely fast helmet and, and I wonder if there's sort of something of the same thing here where you know I know from um, previous specialized launches that uh, Remco Evenepoel is is heavily involved in um, product testing and product development with specialized he's one of their obviously one of their star riders but um, I've also heard a specialized comment that he is particularly good with feedback and and so uh, you know knowing his position and the fact that he gets very he gets very compact in the shoulders gets his head right down 
you know, I wonder if this is a helmet designed around you know, Remco Venepol. And I've seen a picture on his Instagram of him wearing it, and he does look very fast, you know, because he is very fast. But uh, <laughs> it, it, it could be, as you say, I think it had an unfortunate uh, launch in the sense that the guy who <laughs> was sponsored by Specialized and won the opening stage chose to go with the kind of the older helmet, which, you know, which kind of suggests that yeah, he obviously didn't think it was going to make enough difference and, and you know, he had enough in the tank to win the stage uh, without. And of course, you know, had had he lost the stage by a couple of seconds, maybe he would be regretting that decision not to go with the new helmet. And, you know, we, we don't really know. But, um, yeah, a slightly auspicious start for that helmet. And, and I have to say that, it, yeah, it isn't the best looking helmet in the world. But, you know, if if it's fast, there will be people who won't care about that. So I guess we'll have to wait and see. I think I think it's a kind yeah. of let's wait and see rather than a room one hundred and one for now. <laughs> exactly. Yeah, I'm 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 fully aware that I'm 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 judging this this thing on its on its on its looks. And I totally agree yeah. with you on the looks though. Like the balaclava thing is is one of the <laughs> one of the worst things I've seen recently. But yeah, I guess if it works, if, <laughs> if it works, and if it's fast, then you know we we've spoken. Yeah, you know, throughout this podcast about the the fact that Tour Tech and the Tour de France is getting faster, and you know if that's a gain that riders can make, whether it's from specialized sponsored teams or, or elsewhere, because you know as, as I said, uh, Ineos riders were wearing just oversized helmets on the first stage; they were just too big for them to try and mimic the the same effect. If it works, then you know you're winning stages on uh, in the biggest race in the world. Then absolutely crack on. But yeah, for me looking at it from a from a punter's point of view. Um, you know, it's not something that I'll be wearing on, on the club 10, but I'm not, I'm, not, I'm not much of a time trialist. So that probably says more, more about me than anything else. I'd love to see it, George, you turning up on your, on your gravel bike with a specialized TT5, uh, sock helmet. That would be quite a sight. It would be unfortunately one that won't translate to the medium of podcasts that we won't be able to share with us, our dear, our dear How listeners. Sad. How sad indeed. Well, that, that brings everything to an end. Simon, I'm going to put you on the spot here to finish. Who is going to win the Tour de France in 2023? <laughs> uh, I'm gonna. I, well, I, let's. I, I think. I think Vingegaard. And unless unless UAE uh, go on a sh- sort of shopping spree this this winter and significantly up the strength of their team, I, I think Jumbo Visma's uh, ace card is is the strength of their team as we've discussed and. You know, obviously, I'm sure Pogaccio will ride next year's tour very differently to how he's ridden this year's tour. But we didn't see anything in the kind of second half of the race that suggested um, Vingegaard was going to crack. But you know, next is a lot. It's a years a long time in cycling. It is, and you know, I think whatever happens, and we don't know what's going to happen between now and then, and who else is going to emerge. But you know, assuming it's those two riders going toe to toe again, I think it will be a ding dong battle. But I think. I agree with you. I think that the strength of the Jumbo Visma team is it's going to be difficult for UAE team Emirates to match unless they do go on a shopping spree. So yeah, we'll look forward to that one. But you know, let's bring this podcast to an end. It's been great to chat and reflect on this year's Tour de France. If you've enjoyed this podcast, please do leave us a five-star review uh, on your podcast provider of choice and do subscribe to the Bike Radar podcast so you get notified whenever we release a new episode. If you do have any feedback to send to us or you want to suggest a topic or a guest for the podcast, then you can email us on podcast at biteradar.com otherwise we'll leave it there thank you simon for joining me cheers george been a pleasure and thank you for listening we'll speak to you next time 
Thanks for listening to the Bike Radar Podcast. If you've not done so already, please subscribe and share with your friends or leave us a rating if you've enjoyed this episode. 